cosmetic surgery in Cairo. The Egyptian government is out to repair its reputation on human rights. Fall from disgrace. Ex-journalist turned Prime Minister Boris Johnson Thank is you. basically done at 10 Downing Street. And Chile is working on a new constitution that has some of Augusto Pinochet's favorite news outlets fighting for their corporate lives. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is kicking off a national dialogue on human rights, which he says is for the sake of the nation. Egypt's economy is a mess, what with the effects of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. There are shortages of the basics, including bread. And Sisi's got some fences to mend with political opponents, journalists and human rights workers on how to take the country forward. But is this new national dialogue anything more than window dressing for Western eyes? Egypt is a serial violator of human rights and free speech. Its media sphere is tightly controlled and a reported 65,000 political prisoners remain behind bars. One of them is Allah Abdel Fattah, a leading voice in the Arab Spring uprising that toppled Hosni Mubarak's government in 2011. He has spent much of the past decade behind bars. His story and the ongoing fight to release him provide a more realistic picture than any national dialogue will of the actual state of play in President el-Sisi's Egypt. Our starting point this week is Cairo. Allah Abdel Fattah is just one of an estimated 65,000 political prisoners in Egypt. Having spent most of the decade since the Arab Spring behind bars, he is now more than three months into a hunger strike that could take what is left of his life. His is a voice the Egyptian authorities clearly want silenced. Ale is my older brother. He's a writer, he's a software developer. He's always interested in um, empowering people with tools to self-express and to write. The current regime is intent on setting an example for all who dared dream and hope of a change and who participated in the revolution in 2011. And so he has been in prison for the past eight years. One day before his arrest in 2011, he said to the to Egyptians, stay that way, stay silent as we get arrested and are killed until it comes to your doorstep. He's an everyman, but a thinker. Hence the problem for the regime. He's a man who's able to articulate those thoughts very clearly and incisively, thereby broadening his reach. So that is where Alaa's story starts. The Abdel Fattah story is trending now after all these years, largely because President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's government faces fresh political pressures at home and abroad. COVID-19 hit the country hard, and as one of the world's largest importers of wheat, 80% of which comes from Ukraine and Russia, the war has led to shortages of bread and huge price hikes. Sisi's also hosting the world in November at the COP27 climate summit, 
The reporters coming to cover it will have questions on why Egypt is the world's third worst jailer of journalists. It is no coincidence that four months ahead of COP27, the authorities have released a few political prisoners and say they will free others who, quote, don't have blood on their hands. The CC government also announced that after eight years in power, it is now working on something it calls a new national strategy for human rights. Egyptian government is trying to show that things are getting better, particularly with the lead up to the COP27. So it is in the favor of the government right now to put on those cosmetic changes, beautify its image before the COP27. There are prisoners that are being released, but that doesn't mean anything when you are at the same time arresting others. The concept of, of a commission being established uh, to look at the releases uh, of, uh, of prisoners, those who quote unquote don't have blood on their hands. If that concept was so true, Ala Abdel Fattah will be home today. Because even per government story, Ala has zero blood on his hands as do many political prominent and non-prominent prisoners currently languishing in Egyptian jails. So unfortunately, these mini-releases, they give political cover who th for those who seek to appease Sisi and Sisi's government, but are nothing but a charade. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi took power in a coup in 2014. Egyptians have since witnessed what they call the Sisification of their media space. Human rights groups have chronicled how mainstream news outlets have been taken over by holding companies that act as a front for Egyptian intelligence agencies. Others have landed in the hands of wealthy pro-Sisi businessmen. Journalists have been arrested. Hundreds of news websites have been taken down. And of the 180 countries on the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index, Egypt has plummeted ranking 168th. Just about all that remains on the airwaves are pro-Sisi loyalists, whose allegiance is to the president, not to journalism, and those paying the price for actually doing their job. The presenters are Nashat al-Dihi and Ahmed Musa. They are key figures in the Egyptian media landscape. Their word counts and has weight in public opinion. And it's always the same argument against other journalists, that they are traitors to the nation, members of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Egyptian press republishes these statements and then it's shared on social networks. So there's an intensifying of the attack, which is terrifying for the journalists who are targeted. We were always exposed to uh, non-stop uh, tarnishing campaigns and slander campaigns, whether on online, uh, social media, or what was uh, increasingly happening more uh, in the past three years was on state-affiliated newspapers. And especially after Ali's arrest in 2019, it was like I've never seen before. Like state-owned newspapers would have my photo and my brother's photo and would say things about 
the three siblings, the criminals, or Mona is asking her mother, why did you make us criminal? It was just very strange. The government has completely overtook the media channels and blocked about 637 websites. So they control narrative, portray everyone that is opposing or criticizing the government as a Muslim Brotherhood affiliate. From the outset, Allah Abdel Fattah's family connections have been used against him. Ultimately, though, his family may prove to be his salvation. Abdel Fattah's father was a prominent critic of the president right up until he died in 2014. His mother and two sisters have also been targeted by the authorities. They've all been in and out of jail. But because Abdel Fattah was able to apply for and was recently granted British citizenship, the UK's foreign secretary is now involved in his case. Between that, the climate summit that's coming to Cairo, and the CC government's need to make friends abroad, Abdel Fattah may have something that 65,000 other political prisoners in Egypt desperately need, a way out. Abdel Fattah got his British nationality because his mother was born in London. This can help him because dual nationals are generally obliged to renounce their Egyptian nationality and as a result, find themselves protected by the law of the other country that they are citizens of. We hope that this will allow Abdel Fattah to be released and to be able to go to the UK and finally be able to enjoy his freedom there. It's an incredibly smart move by Alaa's family to uh, obtain British citizenship for him because it does give the Egyptian government an out. You have to understand something. The fact that Abdel Fattah Sisi needs to maintain a largely positive relationship with, with Britain is actually intensified by his somewhat shaky relationship with President Biden, who didn't give him the time of day for the vast majority of his presidency. Cynicism is, is, is key to realism. I'm not deeply hopeful, but in the past, help has come from some of the most unexpected sources for Egyptian political prisoners. Boris Johnson's government in the UK has finally come crashing down. There are too many media angles in this story to mention, but Meenakshi Ravi is here with some of them. During his time in politics, long before he became prime minister, Boris Johnson has given satirists and meme makers so much to work with. So it was fitting that the coverage of his downfall had TV hosts like Piers Morgan sharing his studio with a pig. The greased piglet of politics has slipped and squirmed through almost three disastrous years of disorder and deceit. As resignation letters of ministers and MPs rolled in, forcing Johnson out, British news channels kept a running tally of defections in news bulletins and their live coverage of Parliament. The BBC's primetime news programme, Newsnight, dispensed with the credits that usually end the show, scrolling through all the resignations instead. Print publications went with covers and front pages that pulled no punches. Before he entered politics, Johnson worked as a journalist. 
He was fired from the Times of London for inventing quotes. Then he moved to the Telegraph, where he helped whet the British appetite for Brexit. Stationed in Brussels, he filed inaccurate, hyperbolic and europhobic stories. He also wrote political columns for the Telegraph. When Johnson was still digging in his heels at Downing Street, resisting calls to resign, this column went viral. It was from 2010 on Gordon Brown's last days as Prime Minister. It described Brown as an illegal settler in the Sinai Desert and wondered who would tell him his time was up. Eventually, Boris Johnson resigned, not as Prime Minister, just as leader of his party, with a speech in which he blamed the herd instinct at Westminster for forcing him out. Thanks, Mila. For the past three years, Chile has undergone sweeping political change. It began in 2019 with a social uprising, which led to the election last year of Gabriel Boric, the most left-wing president there since Salvador Allende. And now there's a referendum coming in September on a new constitution. It is a far more progressive legal framework than the current constitution, written in 1980 when the country was under military rule and General Augusto Pinochet. Among the more influential players in the referendum campaign are two powerful media conglomerates, El Mercurio and Copesa. They prospered under Pinochet. They both got into bed with him and have since reaped the rewards of life in a neoliberal economy, the corporate concentration that tends to come with that. Diversification of the media sector, for example, is just not in their interest. The Listening Post's Marcela Pizarro now from Santiago on what's at stake for news organizations covering Chile's constitutional referendum. If you want to know what's going on in Chile, just take a look at the city walls. Unfiltered messages plastered across the streets of Santiago. Chile has awoken, yes, to the new constitution. Apruebo, I approve. One of the characteristics of Chile's society is that it occupies public spaces with political murals. These murals are forms of media communication in themselves, and from them we feel the pulse of what's happening. What's happening is that on September the 4th, Chileans will go to the polls to decide whether or not to ratify a new constitution. It all started in 2019 when, after years of simmering anger over growing social inequality, a simple hike in the cost of metro fares lit the fuse. Millions of Chileans took to the streets, demanding an end to the free market system that had made commodities out of things like healthcare, education, pensions at their expense. To lead the charge, they voted in Chile's first socialist president in 50 years, Gabriel Boric, on the promise of change. Change premised on one narrative thread, one unifying story, targeting the current constitution which enshrined neoliberalism in Chile and is widely seen as the source of the country's ills. Chile's current constitution dates back to 1980, drawn up by the then military dictator, General Augusto Pinochet. That process took place behind closed doors, and it was only the media aligned to that regime that got any access. Some 40 years later, 
The new draft is being hashed out here in Congress and, unlike the last time, it's been streamed across multiple platforms for all to see. It's a complicated, challenging process conducted by political newcomers elected by voters disenchanted by traditional politicians. Most of the 155 assembly members drafting the new charter have never done anything like this before. One of them is Patricio Fernandez. During the 1990s, he founded a renowned political satire magazine, The Clinic. It's one of the few independent media outlets that took regular jabs at Pinochet and his legacy. A legacy Fernandez is now trying to rewrite. The citizens who took to the streets across the country have a deep mistrust of the political establishment. So that's why most assembly members are independent, including myself. Chile is a very segregated country where there's rarely been this kind of dialogue between rich and poor, and where, for the first time ever, a political process is led by an indigenous Mapuche Indian. How will this end? We'll see on September 4th. A verlo el 4 de septiembre. Si uno ve las noticias sobre la convención constituyente, uno tendría la impresión que el mundo está a punto de acabarse. Sí. ¿Están así? Mira, eso no es tan así. No, it's not. Media ownership in Chile is very concentrated and positioned ideologically. El Mercurio is a bastion of the Chilean right, as is La Tercera, as well as lots of TV channels. Their editorial lines have shown there was never any desire for this process. The coverage has exposed a preference for the anecdotal over the big picture, and they've discredited the process by exaggerating its potential dangers. Those owners fear the impending structural changes that a new constitution might mean for Chile, and it plays out in their coverage. Headlines threatening economic instability, the state taking over the National Bank, pensioners losing their savings. And then there's the indigenous angle, their demands for rights and recognition recast in the media, stories of the Chilean flag being replaced, national anthems being rewritten, the end of the Chilean Republic. Disinformation presented to the Chilean public as a possible outcome of the constitutional referendum. Certain narratives have been established in the media. One pits the idea of national unity and a unique national identity against indigenous demands for recognition in a country where many different peoples cohabit. This pervasive patriotic media narrative has been repeated again and again, particularly by El Mercurio, where you can see various calls to take back the traditional values of the Republic, values that are supposedly threatened by diversity and pluralism. The new constitution seeks to redistribute power. Today, those who own legacy media outlets are the ones with economic power. They are part of the elite and they're scared because they know it's going to be much harder for them to get rich at the country's expense. The fear that they're going to have to redistribute their wealth is reflected in the editorial lines of outlets like El Mercurio and La Tercera. Media structures in Chile are closely associated with economic power. This new constitution threatens that power with the nationalization of things like private pensions, health services, even agricultural reforms. 
Chile is the only country in the world where water has been commodified. The media elite is scared that its varied interests are at stake if even water is to be nationalized under a constitutional rule change. Chileans know this story. El Mercurio has been at the center of the country's political life since the 1800s. During the 1970s, it was paid by the CIA to fund a propaganda campaign to bring down the socialist government of President Salvador Allende. When he was overthrown in the 1973 military coup led by General Pinochet, the paper notoriously covered up the brutality of the dictatorship that followed mass torture, disappearances, death. When Pinochet finally managed to push through the current version of Chile's constitution in 1980, El Mercurio led its implementation. After the 80s, the media did start opening up, and there were oppositional papers. But how did the system work? The media depended on government advertising to survive, and the state obviously privileged El Mercurio and La Tercera. And this has carried on into the democratic period because the governments know these outlets have a big influence on public opinion. And as a result, the more independent media outlets have found it impossible to survive. That might be set to change because in the new draft of the Constitution, there are recommendations that many at the helm of the media establishment will not take too kindly. The proposals for the new Constitution change the 1980 Charter significantly when it comes to the media. They go against neoliberal monopolies and they call for regional, local and community outlets. They also push for a framework where the state builds a media which fulfills its role as a public service. We, as journalists, have also been responsible for the problems that caused the social uprising. We let things go on for too long, and we failed to report on the people's demands. There's a mural in La Victoria, a poor era of Santiago, that reads, communication at the service of the people. We mustn't forget this. It's an important lesson for us about the practice of journalism itself. The rebellion on the streets says a lot. We can see that most of the murals are in support of the process. And this is only going to keep growing as we near the September 4th referendum. A referendum which presents Chile with a choice. Bury Pinochet's constitution. Yes or no. And finally, back to Egypt and the ongoing ceasification of the media there that has seen hundreds of news platforms closed. A redrawing of the red lines on what can or cannot be said and the jailing of dozens of journalists. Only China and Saudi Arabia have more journalists behind bars than Egypt does. According to Reporters Without Borders, at least 25 media professionals have been arbitrarily arrested under President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi since 2014. We're closing this week's program with some snapshots, profiles of some of those in jail who are barely spoken of in Egypt and who are at the mercy of a state that has proven merciless in its assault on freedom of expression. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.